The coronavirus is the latest disaster, but there have been many, many others. And when you look at what goes on in one of these markets, it's frightening to see. Unlike the poultry department at Safeway, um, the animals are still alive. If it sounds creepy from a standpoint of animal welfare, you're right. Yeah. Um, but it also has a tremendous implication for human health. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen this week, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. Here during an unusual time, to say the least. What we're experiencing right now is unlike anything that most of us have ever or will ever experience in our lifetime. The coronavirus, COVID-19, it's now a global pandemic and the number of cases is seemingly rising exponentially with every passing day. And the effects of the virus, they're being felt by everyone, pretty much everywhere. Our daily lives are being disrupted. Schools businesses, restaurants, all of them shutting down in an effort to slow the rapid spread of the virus, or flatten the curve, as experts like to say. Store shelves, they're being ravaged as people are stockpiling enough food and supplies to ride out the storm for however long it may last. Talking about panic purchasing, driven by two things panic purchasing is. One, It's driven by fear. And two, to feel as though we have control over something, anything, because we don't have control of this thing. It is out of our hands. But the groceries and the toilet paper and the disinfectants, the mask, the gloves, those are something that we can control. And it makes us feel a little bit better to have them. So we load up. And we breathe a little easier. And there's also so much concern with our friends, our family, our loved ones. And that alone, really, that concern is enough to keep us up at night. And then many of us also starting to feel the financial burden of this pandemic. The money is getting tight. Jobs are drying up as more people are staying home. No paychecks are coming in. And what does that cause? More stress. If you get the slightest cough, if you sneeze, if your temperature rises a tenth of a degree above 98.6, you start to wonder, am I infected? More stress. The entire situation is chaotic, and I'm I'm really not trying to blow things out of proportion here. This is simply painting a picture of how the majority of us are thinking, how we're feeling right now. And it is an extremely stressful time because this is something that came completely, seemingly so out of left field. It's so random that really, it seemed like it was inevitable. Something like this was bound to happen and nothing could be done to prevent it. Or could it? That actually may not be the case. And my guests on the show today say that the spread of this novel coronavirus was 
almost entirely preventable. They say that we have failed to learn from our previous mistakes, the previous outbreaks that we've experienced. My guests say that this did not have to happen. And they are Dr. Neil Barnard and journalist Wendy Orrent. Dr. Barnard, he will be joining me momentarily to discuss the role that the meat industry is creating in terms of virus transmission. And his message, really, it's simple. If we didn't have these massive meat farms, these reservoirs of animals, we could avoid much of the exposure to these pandemic-causing viruses. And he's going to show us how the conditions of poultry farms are putting us at risk for all kinds of illnesses, far more than COVID-19. Talking about a lot of things, even painful UTIs. But I want to begin today with Wendy Orrent. I had the privilege of speaking with her, and she helped to trace the origins of the COVID-19 virus, where it began, and how it was passed down from animal to animal, and then eventually to humans. And she's going to explain exactly where it is that we went wrong. You'll hear her talk about measures that were put in place nearly two decades ago that would have stopped this pandemic. But then after that SARS epidemic that brought about these measures in the first place, after that SARS epidemic kind of quieted down, those life-saving measures were quietly removed themselves. As we continue here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll, I'm joined now over the phone by the author of Plague, The Mysterious Past and Terrifying Future of the World's Most Dangerous Disease, as well as BioWarrior, which is an absolutely fascinating read. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about the coronavirus. She had a a wonderful op-ed in the LA Times recently, and I wanted to welcome her to the show to talk about that. And so with that, I'd like to say hello to Wendy Arndt. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate your having me. I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Um, Dr. Neil Barnard actually passed along your op-ed to me, and it was just a really, just such an enlightening read about it. And it was about kind of learning from the mistakes that we've made in the past. And, And your kind of summation is that the coronavirus epidemic that we're facing right now was preventable. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, because it it seems like we haven't learned our lessons from the past. And let's let's kind of start from the top here, Wendy. This coronavirus, where did this thing initiate? We, We know that it was in Wuhan, China, obviously, but you say that it was in a wet market. So what exactly does that mean? A wet market is a market which is houses a tremendous number of animals caged together. This is often called a seafood market, but that's very misleading because you don't catch viruses from dead seafood, except a norovirus or something like that. But infectious respiratory virus has to come from a living animal, uh, a mammal, or perhaps a bird. Um, In this case, we believe that This virus originated in bats because there's some genetic evidence to show that. 
that it got somehow into the animal market and that, like SARS before it in 2003, started moving among the animals to people. Uh, the interesting thing about this virus is that it appears to be something of a generalist. Like a lot of coronaviruses, it may be able to infect a lot of different species. So it wasn't terribly hard to jump from a giant uh, wet market with thousands of different kinds of animals caged together to human beings. And then once it was in human beings, it started cycling, that is to say, moving from person to person to person. These markets are very crowded with people as well as with animals. And the conditions of the animals, uh, or the conditions that the animals are kept in, you've mentioned many times now that they're very crowded. Would I be correct in assuming that they're also rather dirty? They're kind of filthy conditions? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I've seen, uh, this was taken off Chinese TV, but someone got it to CNN, and I saw uh, some clips of what this market actually looks like, some uh, film clips. And you just have all of these animals in these cages. It's very pathetic and distressing to see. Um, and, of course, it's not at all clean. And, uh, you know, just the sight of, you know, four or five, six animals in a cage, it is very uh, troubling. And what kind of animals oh. are we talking about here? Oh, my God. Um, civets, uh, raccoon dogs, as they're called, uh, wolves, porcupines, um, just animals that we wouldn't even think of as food animals, but which are highly prized in certain sectors of China It's as a kind of uh, status symbol, wild meat is supposed to be good for you and it's supposed to be high status. And so the wealthier China has become, it seems, the bigger and more important are these markets, I believe. And so, I mean, like, I, I have not seen the footage, but if I close my eyes, I'm kind of picturing this giant open-air meat market. And that's not something that we would really see in the U.S., I think, you know, for, for no, safety reasons. Yeah. Um, well, also, we don't eat things like that, uh, typically. Um, sure. But, but uh, it's actually, the pictures that I saw, it looks like it's not open air, that it's actually indoors. You, uh, you, the, the, the cages are, are in, within a, an enclosed building, as far as I can tell. Gotcha. Okay. Okay, so everybody's kind of Which in close quarters. Worse. Yeah, everybody's in close yeah. quarters. The animals are there. Yeah. It's many different species. And you said it's kind of like a, a generalist virus. So it can jump from species to species and then eventually over to humans. So like that's that's just kind of one big breeding ground then for the virus, isn't it? Exactly. At least that's what um, some of us have been thinking. Uh, because of the ease with which this spread uh, makes it makes you think that it wasn't specialized to one particular species because it got into people so quickly and began to adapt so quickly. Um, it's very different from what we see with avian flu. Uh, uh, yeah, the H H5N1 avian flus, where they're very very specialized to chickens and and um, other poultry, and it's much harder for people to catch it. We'll, we'll talk about that. At all. 
Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a second. But I want to think back to 2003 during the SARS pandemic. And China, actually, they had a pretty uh, stiff response to, to wet markets once it was learned that, hey, this is kind of where the virus is stemming from. What did China do back in 2003? To my knowledge, they shut the markets down at least temporarily. Well, it was temporary. I don't know how long they were shut down for, but that was the initial response. But, of course, they've opened up again with a vengeance. Right. And so that goes back to not learning the lesson. Um, but it, it's exactly. it, it's not just the wet markets, though. Um, experts are saying that there are other problems there. In your op-ed, you wrote about massive poultry farms where as many as 5 million chickens are housed in one farm. And so while the virus, it's spreading kind of like wildfire among the chickens – you, you just kind of hinted at this, but is it slightly more difficult for that form of the virus to be passed to humans? Like, don't they have to come in close contact with the bird at that point? Yes. Uh, the, of course, it's a different virus. This, uh, the one we're talking about now, is they call it COVID-19, which is novel coronavirus. Uh, 2019 is the old name for it. Um, what spreads in the, the uh, giant chicken farms is influenza, uh, high, highly pathogenic um, uh, avian influenza, uh, also known as bird flu. And it is very, very highly adapted to these chickens. It can just rip right through a chicken farm. But to, in order for a human to catch it, they have to be exposed to poultry. I think there's only one case where it seemed like a mother who was cradling her sick child who had come down with the disease, also caught it. But other than that, I don't believe there are any cases of person-to-person transmission of the highly pathogenic uh, avian flu. Uh, It's just very, very difficult to catch because these uh, viruses are so highly adapted to poultry. They they attach to different receptors, and they're much, much uh, harder for human beings to catch. They uh, the receptors they attach to are deep in the in the, the throat and the lungs, and and just harder to cough it out and and spread it to someone else. You made an interesting point in your column as well, is that there are also these gigantic pig farms, but unlike with the poultry uh, version of of the virus, uh, it is much easier for humans to get this virus from pigs. Is that correct? So this is a a much greater threat. Well, as we saw in 2009, um, there was a giant uh, swine flu pandemic, uh, well, a giant swine flu outbreak in Veracruz, Mexico, uh, which just ripped through this huge poultry, this huge swine farm uh, where they had, I don't even know how many uh, pigs, but hundreds of thousands. And uh, People caught it, and initially it was very deadly. And then as it cycled among people and got better at spreading among people, the virulence dropped. But nonetheless, this thing went worldwide. Um, And uh, quite a number of people ended up dying from it, uh, especially younger people and pregnant women. It was more dangerous because older people may have had some... um, resistance to it because it's not completely unlike earlier viruses that have circulated. So um, 
But yes, people are more like pigs than they are like chickens. And so that was an outbreak waiting to happen. And those conditions go on. We haven't learned our lesson about uh, giant pig farms either. I think that maybe the lay person might be wondering right now, is it possible to catch this by eating pork? Or um, is it a case of you get it, it gets spread because uh, the farmer catches it from the pig and then the farmer then passes that on to another human and that's kind of how it spreads? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I, I, you know, if you were handling raw pork from a sick pig, you could get it, I'm sure. But in general... Um, it's a respiratory transmission, and you get it from someone who uh, spread it either onto a surface or directly uh, at you via the air or by touching your hand or whatever. I've got some particles on you, but it's, it, you know, if you were eating a cooked pork chop, you wouldn't get the virus. Gotcha. And I want to go back to what you were saying about the wet markets and there being so many different species in there. Would I be correct in assuming that each time the virus gets passed to a different species, it, it mutates even just a little bit, and maybe that accelerates uh, how quickly it spreads? Well, it depends. Uh, it depends on how much cycling it does in any particular species. If it's cycling from uh, one to another to another to another to another in the same species, you expect it to evolve in a way that's going to make it more fit, more adapted to that host species. That's what's happened with human beings. Uh, it's difficult to say what the trajectory of this virus was, but uh, because of the ease of transmission, that's why, and the, the readiness that the virus uh, seemed to show about jumping into people, that makes us, some of us think that it's um, more of a generalist than something highly adapted in one in one species moving in a, in you know a direction different and that would make it harder for people to catch like what you see with avian influenza gotcha and i w- i would assume i mean coronavirus is i mean that's that's the topic right now that's what's happening at this moment but if we right. don't take steps here to kind of clean things up there's a good chance in your estimation that this is just going to keep happening right Oh, certainly. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, I don't know how frequently, but it happened with SARS, and now it's happened again, and it's totally predictable. As long as they keep these conditions going, uh, bats will infect other animals, and it will happen again. And how many people have to die before they get the picture that, you know, slamming a city into quarantine is very nice, I suppose, although how well that's worked, I, I think, is open to doubt. I think the jury's out on that one. But why did this have to happen in the first place? I mean, it would have been, it's like letting the horse out of the, the you know, uh, uh, the stable after the, uh, I mean, um, you know, it's, it's the, the, the horse is already out of the stable. It should mm-hmm. never have been allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there really is no choice if the Chinese want to prevent this. Um, you know, what they do after the fact doesn't, change the fact that a lot of people have already died and people have been very sick and this has been tremendously disruptive to the to the economy of China and to the economy of other countries in the world. And then you've got these people sitting in cruise ships just marooned. And this is a huge price to pay for the wet markets. Uh, that They have just got to be shut down in the interest of public health. 
And there are some people who are probably thinking that a wet market or something similar is just limited to China. But the reality here, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there are similar markets really just kind of across the world. Isn't that right? I really couldn't say. I, d I don't know um, how... Uh I know that in Korea there there have certainly been these dog markets, but I don't know how how much the wet markets are limited to China. I've really only heard of these giant things in China. Gotcha. Um, whether they because it's you know it's a very prestigious thing for a wealthy Chinese person to come home with a a civet slaughtered civet and cook it up. This is um, considered to be an honor to your guests and also of health benefit and so they're very prized and there are a lot of economic interests at stake in keeping these markets open but i would just counter by pointing out that the if you want to put it in economic terms alone uh it's hardly worth it when you consider all the people that have died and 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 the the how the economy is slowed down right now because of the quarantines and the isolations it's amazing the economic impact that these things can have. And you know, I think that dollars more than anything drive change uh, in this world. That's just kind of the reality. But going back to the, the wet market thing, it, I mean, wet markets may be kind of only limited to that particular region. We'll, we'll just say that. But there are massive poultry farms and massive pig farms across the world. And that's undeniable. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And they're here right in this country. Right. And they, too, pose or can pose, have the potential to pose a, a serious threat for us as well. Uh, absolutely. When you house a lot of animals together, what happens is that uh, the breaks to virulence or deadliness uh, for the virus come off. Now, what this means is if you think for a minute about how flu transmits, it either transmits because somebody's got a uh, bit of virus on their hands and they get it in their mouth or, or something or in their nose, which is why they're always telling you to wash your hands, or because somebody comes along and coughs at them or sneezes in their vicinity. So basically, if a virus like influenza is kind of durable in the outside environment, which this which influenza and coronaviruses both are for a few hours. People can get sick that way, and that allows the disease to maintain a certain degree of deadliness because there's no cost to the virus um, at being deadly uh, if the virus is somewhat durable. Um, but on the other hand, when it's uh, the really kicker thing is if you think about how flu virus is, is spread, it usually uses a human being as a delivery system. So it keeps you up and on your feet long enough to sneeze in somebody's face and transmit the virus to somebody that way. So the host maintains mobility. And as long as the disease is spread basically from a mobile host, it keeps the deadliness in bounds. If you think about Ebola, somebody gets Ebola, they're flat on their back, and they die. And people catch Ebola by taking care of a sick or dying person. So it's, a, it's much deadlier, and it doesn't rely on a mobile host for transmission. But once you start packing animals together so that the virus doesn't need a mobile host anymore, like on a chicken farm or a pig farm where you think the pigs are just snout to snout, then the virus has no, it's not 
any loss to the virus to become deadlier and deadlier and deadlier because the next house is just a snout or a beak away. And this is why you see over and over again the evolution of great virulence or deadliness in these giant farms. You've got animals hacked together uh, in massive numbers and the disease just gets worse and worse and worse. And it's kind of like what happened to um, uh, soldiers in during World War One when the uh, deadly 1918 flu, I'm sure you've heard of that, erupted. Mm-hmm. Sure. You had soldiers packed in, in trenches and, and hospitals and trains and trucks, all packed in together, the sick and the well, and the disease evolved great virulence that way. Same thing. Short disease of shut- factory. Short of shutting down these massive farms and the wet markets, is there anything that we can do to prevent this from happening again? No. Wow. Okay. No. Aspen Hansen. Yeah, as long as you're going to have uh, giant farms, you're going to get, and it's not just influenza, I mean, but the list of, of, of uh, like African swine fever. Every time you pack in animals, you're going to get outbreaks of disease. It just It's just going to happen. I mean, not every single time, but it does happen again and again and again because we don't learn. We don't learn that that's what causes deadly diseases, packing animals together. So I'm a numbers guy. Let's, let's talk probabilities here. So if we don't make these changes, what would you say the probability is of something like this or worse happening in the future? I think it's 100%. Wow. And keep these markets up. I think it's 100% it will happen again. Mm-hmm. You just get the evolution of these diseases again and again and again. And uh, we see that with Newcastle disease, African swine fever, um, various types of influenza with, um, with SARS, now with this. It's just, mm-hmm. uh, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a cheerful prospect. Uh, you have to remember that bird flu in the wild, among wild animals, is benign. They don't get sick because dead ducks don't fly. So, you know, they, they just have a little bit of intestinal infection and on they go. And it's only when it gets into a poultry farm that it becomes deadly. That is a sobering thought, Wendy. But uh, it definitely kind of provokes us to to take some time and, and think about things and, and you know, thinking about pushing forward that change that so clearly is needed. So, Wendy Arndt, thank you so very much for taking the time to join us here on The Exam Room. And thank you, Jim. We've linked off to Wendy's column in the LA Times in the episode notes if you would like to give it a read. That was a really interesting conversation, wasn't it? Why in the world were the restrictions that were imposed on wet markets lifted after the SARS outbreak died down. And is this, right now, what we're experiencing, is this the wake-up call that we need to make sure that those restrictions are imposed once again, but become permanent? Well, only time will tell. But my next guest certainly has his fingers crossed that will, in fact, be the case. And he's here now to talk about conditions much closer to home. Dr. Neil Barnard is here to talk about how these animal reservoirs are putting all of our health in jeopardy, even vegans and vegetarians.
We're continuing a really interesting program here on the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee as we take a look at the emerging, it's not even emerging anymore, COVID-19, the coronavirus. It is literally everywhere, and it seems despite no matter uh, all the best efforts that are being made, uh, this thing cannot be contained. But our previous guest said that it was completely preventable, and now to take that message a step further is Dr. Neil Barnard. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, Wendy Orant was just on the show, and she was walking us through uh, the wet markets where in, in Wuhan where this virus originated. It passed down from animal to animal to eventually human. And I believe your message here is that this is not uncommon at all. Right. Um, the coronavirus is, is um, the latest uh, disaster, but there have been many, many others. And when you look at what goes on in one of these markets, um, it's frightening to see. Um, for, for people who are not familiar with this, the idea is you're going to get poultry, mm-hmm. but unlike the poultry department at Safeway, um, the animals are still alive. Um, and the reason for that in many cases is because the people may not have refrigeration. Right. And so they don't want a carcass sitting around. So, uh, for example, look at this woman who's on her bicycle. Um, those birds hanging from the handlebars are alive, and they're not going to be killed until shortly before they're put in the pot. And the, the, because of a lack of refrigeration, they don't want to kill them prematurely. Um, and if, if you are just hearing the audio version of this, head over to uh, the Physicians Committee's YouTube page and pull up the video. You can see these images that Dr. Barnard is talking about. Yeah, and if it, if it sounds creepy from a standpoint of animal welfare, you're right. Yeah. Um, but it also has a tremendous um, uh, implication for human health. And by the way, I don't mean to simply say that it's only these live markets. You can come into any other country um, and you'll find enormous um, areas where animals are raised in close confinement and they carry uh, pathogens. Mm-hmm. They carry organisms that may not make them sick, but can make you sick. Um, and let me point out one thing that's, I think, particularly important, and that's influenza. Flu season. Right. Who knew that flu came from birds? Um, this diagram that I want to show, and forgive me for the people who are, who are just listening to this, but, but you'll be able to see the, the live diagram. Um, Back in 1918, the H1N1 influenza virus uh, passed from ducks into humans. And so that virus killed millions upon millions of people. The 1918 flu was just legendary. Um, But then it stayed dormant for a while. And then, as depicted in the New England Journal of Medicine, in 1957, a new virus, H2N2, if I'm remembering right, yes, H2N2 combined with that original virus, and they got married, made a whole new baby virus that is novel and to which people were not immune. And so that ended up killing many more people. That was 1957. And then eventually people acquired immunity, and it became dormant for a while. Mm-hmm. 1968 comes back, the so-called Hong Kong flu, um, this virus that was then existing, combined with a brand new virus and made yet another more virulent strain. So what we're seeing is going all the way back to 1918, the, the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of that virus are causing the influenzas today. Moral of the story, if we had not had these poultry farms, this would not have happened. What, what happens is a wild duck might settle down near a poultry farm where there's a huge number of, of animals and they're farm workers. And so they get exposed to this. The, the uh, 
the influenza virus will propagate, and then it passes from the farm workers into their contacts, and from there it just takes off. You mentioned the word novel. Um, what exactly does that mean? Because now we've heard about the novel coronavirus. Uh, does that just mean we don't know a whole heck of a lot about it yet? Um, novel means that it's one that, that didn't exist before. Um, you, it's, it's just like taking uh, one animal and another animal, breeding them together and making an entirely new species, so to speak. Um, with viruses, that is possible, and they, they are very promiscuous. <laughs> they are quite re- uh, ready to make... Uh, a, a new kind of virus. The problem medically is that we do not have immunity to it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have a certain amount of immunity to existing viruses, and that will even happen to an extent to the seasonal flus uh, that come about. But then, all of a sudden, a poultry worker presents to you a new variant of a, vi- uh, a virus that came from a duck or some other wild, uh, wild bird that settled down near their flock, passed through the flock, passed into them, passed into their family members, and um, and then it becomes a new epidemic. So before we move on and, and take this in a direction that I hadn't even begun to connect these dots until you pointed it out to me, uh, I, I got to ask you um, kind of your opinion. Uh, one of the things that Wendy was talking about was that uh, after the SARS epidemic about a decade ago, China moved to shut down these wet markets. There was no question that this is where the, the virus originated. And right. here we are in the same position here in 2020. Um, and But they shut down these wet markets, but then shortly thereafter, they opened them back up with no new regulation that right. I know of. And so why in the world weren't new regulations imposed so that we wouldn't go through this again? You just showed us a chart that said that we've been doing the same thing for more than a century now. Exactly. And I think the reason is money because there's a lot of money behind livestock sales. And it's not only there, it's also true in the United States. Um, We can point our finger all we want to at China for why aren't they regulating this better. Look in the United States. You can go into just about any one of these huge farms. They're using antibiotics. Right. Um, They're using antibiotics. They use them because if you can control bacterial populations, the animals grow faster. And the farmers know this. Um, 70 or 80 percent of all antibiotics sold in the United States are not used by doctors. They are used by farmers, uh, specifically on animals. So what does that mean for you? That means that by the time one of these bacteria that the that may be in the animals, uh, the, the bacteria have been exposed to the antibiotics. They are developing resistance to it. By the time that bacterium makes its way into your body and you get pneumonia, urinary tract infection, you name it, the bacteria has already developed resistance to the antibiotics your doctor wants to use to treat you. Mm. Um, so many people, um, doctors have been speaking out about this for the longest time, saying, you are destroying our antibiotics. As long as you use them on animals on farms, the, animals, uh, the, the, the bacteria will develop resistance, and we can't use them clinically anymore. Um, the farmers have a huge uh, lobby. They want to keep using them, and so does the drug industry. They want to keep selling them to, to the agriculture just, industry. Money. They don't care if you live or die. They want th- their bottom line. I hate to say this, but I think it's true. Their bottom line is making some money. Yeah. And they know perfectly well that insulin uh, – not insulin resistance, I'm sorry, antibiotic resistance is going to cause massive problems. Um, and it just continues. It's interesting that you say that because I think that the prevailing theory is that antibiotics are failing because they're being overprescribed to patients who go in there. They've got the sniffles. I want antibiotics. I mean that's that's kind of the thing that we're told and, and we've heard uh, in, in a lot of reports. But it sounds to me like there's a, a bigger issue here. What you said is is true. 
that a person might see the doctor and say, you know, uh, I've got an illness. I'm not sure if it's viral or bacterial, but give me a Z-pack of antibiotics. Maybe I'll be okay. Um, there is some overprescribing there. Um, however, that's not the bulk of it. The vast, vast, vast majority of these antibiotics are used in what's called a subtherapeutic dose in animals, giving them free reign to acquire resistance to bacteria. And then the particularly scary part that's been coming out in the last decade is we've learned that once one bacterium develops resistance, that's a genetic trait that they can then pass to other bacteria mm. um, so that they have learned to to uh, to convey uh, drug resistance to, to other organisms. And so we now have organisms that we see in hospitals that are resistant to just about everything. Um, that's thanks to... Uh, and, and by the way, I don't want to just single out the, the farmers, um, although I think they, they do, do deserve some of the responsibility for this. But the ultimate responsibility goes with the, the, the consumers who are buying this stuff. Um, and keeping those farms alive. And if we had suddenly everyone saying, for whatever reason, I'm not going to patronize livestock products, those problems would largely go away. I think for the most part, I, I don't think that the average American is quite aware of how many antibiotics, you know, the, the chickens that they're consuming have actually consumed themselves. Right. Oh, oh yes. And, and that's the big issue. And which leads me to, to another thing, which I want to walk you through. Yeah. Um, this is E. coli. Um, Escherichia coli, um, not a very friendly-looking bacteria, no. and a big cause of urinary tract infections. And researchers in Canada wanted to know where are we getting the E. coli from? If it's causing a urinary tract infection, typical case: thirty-year-old woman, she develops uh, frequency and pain, and she goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, "Give me a urine sample," and he says, or he or she, the doctor will say, "You've got a UTI." and we'll have to treat you with antibiotics. Um, the researchers in Canada said, where are these bugs coming from? So it turned out that these E. coli look very much like the, like the E. coli strains that are in poultry, in chickens uh, in particular. And so what they did is they took hundreds and hundreds of samples from patients with urinary tract infections. And you can take a DNA fingerprint of the bacteria, so you can tell exactly what strain it is. They then went into poultry farms and sampled the chickens, and they went into the poultry counter at the store. And in this case, it looks like it's poultry bacteria mm -hmm. that are causing about 70 or 80% of urinary tract infections. Uh, not so much cattle bacteria, not so much pig bacteria, but specifically chickens. Um, and the way it works is that a, a person buys a, a frozen chicken at the store bring the chicken home. On their kitchen counter, they remove the plastic. And a little bit of, of juice dribbles out on the, the counter. And, you know, you have to remind yourself, chickens are not fruit. They don't have juice. Um, if there's juice that's dribbling out of a chicken, what that is is water that was in the cooling vat. Uh, when the chickens are, are, are slaughtered, their heads are removed, all the feathers are removed, and then the warm carcass goes into this big, cool, cool water bath to cool down the, the carcass mm -hmm. so that it doesn't rot too quickly. Um, well, that water is kind of clean for the first few hundred chickens that go through it, but pretty soon it gets covered with feces and feathers and dirt and insects and, you know, whatever. And the, the, the chicken's muscle tissue 
is quite absorbent. It's like a sponge. So as they're going through the cooling bath, they're soaking up the fecal material from the previous chickens that have been through. And then that's what's dribbling out on your kitchen counter. You take your sponge, you wipe it up, you put it back, your child's pacifier drops on the floor, let me clean that up for you. Same sponge in the baby's mouth. Or it just gets on your fingers. Or on mm. your cutting board. Mm. Or on your knife. I- am I cheering you up, Chuck? Yeah, so <laughs> what are you having for dinner? Good gracious. <laughs> it's, it's kind of creepy. But um, what the researchers in Canada found is that in 70 or 80% of cases, the genetic fingerprint that you find at the, the chicken counter in the grocery store and on the chicken farm is the very same one that you see in particularly women with UTIs. What does that mean? It means that on their kitchen counter, when the, the chicken juice was there, somewhere along the line, it got into their mouth. And mm. as it went down their esophagus, it stayed in their gut and just propagated there. Day after day, month after month, and the bugs stay there. And then sooner or later, it's not a very long trip from the anus to the urethra, mm. and then it creeps up and you get a UTI. Now, I'm not saying... That if people never ate chicken, they would never get a urinary tract infection. There are other contributors to it. But the great bulk of them come from chicken. That uh, coolant, that bath that you were talking about, is that the fecal soup that we've talked about on previous episodes? That's the fecal soup, yes. Not not brought to you by Progresso. No, no, no. And and, uh, what you're talking about, I mean, there there have been a number of studies that that have actually looked – at this um, and and kind of back this up. I mean, this isn't just a, a hypothesis that you're spouting off here. I mean, we've got we've got the, the facts to oh, back yeah. this up. Yes, in fact, we, maybe we can even post to the article so that for people, sure people can read them themselves. Because when the researchers describe this, they've they've been actually doing this for for years, and uh, it's now been quite confirmed. And they and they found that cows and pigs have their own bacteria, their own issues, um, and some of which can be quite serious. But for when it comes to urinary tract infections, it's the chickens. Interesting uh, thing here. One of the studies that you sent me uh, to get going here said that uh, this uh, research that had been done, this particular uh, study said, uh, researchers tracked UTI incidence rates for roughly 9,700 vegetarian and non-vegetarian participants. Results showed a 16% decreased risk for UTIs among those following a vegetarian diet. so You don't eat the poultry, your risk falls. It seems to make sense to mm-hmm. me. Uh, so, I mean, there's just a whole lot going on here, from uh, the coronavirus to the E. coli to the UTI to the antibiotics. I mean, there's, there's just a lot to, to unpack here. There is, but they all have one thing in common, and that is that there are infective organisms that, that come from animals. And they might have lived quite happily with the animals. The animals may not have been symptomatic. But when people have had the mistaken judgment, in my view, to make the animals part of their dinner, and particularly when they raise them in a, in a flock, mm-hmm. uh, I'm talking about maybe even in, in an Asian country where the flocks are not that big. It might be 50 birds um, in somebody's backyard. That's all it takes um, to have one of these uh, microorganisms uh, multiply. And, right. of course, here in the United States where the flocks are huge, yeah. enormous, um, you've got the same problem. Yeah, oh, you were just showing um, right. some slides. Um, so uh, real quick before we wrap this up, I think that a lot of people are, are probably uh, wondering this question. Obviously, we don't know a whole heck of a lot yet about COVID-19. We're learning more every single day, but there's still so many unanswered questions. But just as with that uh, study we were just talking about where the vegan vegetarian diet decreases your risk for UTIs, 
Could one surmise then that eating a clean diet, a plant-based diet, obviously we know that that leads you to be healthier. There's no blanket immunity that I understand for this virus, but this puts you at a better risk of not, I don't know, getting so severely sick with it. Um, uh, all hypothesis. Okay. Let's couch that. Well, s- several things should be said. First of all, there's no substitute for good hygiene. Hand washing and so forth is, is important. Um, uh, being, you know, being uh, cognizant of sneezing and coughing and how to ha- handling those hygienically, all important. Um, however, it is also useful to not bring livestock products into your house. Um, people who don't eat them, it's best possible uh, possible thing um, that will not protect you 100% because you're on the metro next to somebody who is eating them. Um, they, you know, your hand goes on the, the <laughs> metro pole where their hand had been. Um, yeah. And you can imagine the E. coli spreading to you. So, yeah. so um, you're not 100% uh, protected. But but I have to say that these, these um, particularly these E. coli bacteria and other antibiotic resistant strains do spread from farms to farm workers to farm communities to then elsewhere. And so it's uh, part of the price of, of doing business, I'm sorry to say. And I, I, the more that people switch to um, other kinds of agriculture, the better. One of the nicest uh, attributes of spinach and tomatoes and asparagus is that they don't have intestinal tracts. Hey, how about so, that? So they, so they don't have intestinal bacteria. You know, I just wonder, and, and this is my final thought, I just seriously wonder with all of this panic in the world right now, all of this uproar, all of this concern, is this going to be the tipping point to really wake up and, and make some lasting changes here? We saw this again just about a decade ago with SARS, and here we are again in 2020. Um, People have said again and again and again, if people did not raise animals for food, if they did not eat animals, we wouldn't have heart attacks uh, to the extent we have certain cancers and diabetes to the extent that we have them now. And with regard to infectious illnesses, exactly the same story. This is another reason not only to clean up our diets individually, but also culturally. Very interesting look inside what's going on uh, with your poultry. Uh, Dr. Barnard, thank you very much for your time. Hopefully the next time you're here, we can talk about some things that are a little bit more pleasant. (laughs) I look forward to that, Chuck. Some major lessons were learned on the show today. This global pandemic was avoidable. It was preventable. And we must now heed the warnings, examine the facts to drastically reduce the chances of something like this COVID-19 outbreak ever happening again. This is a scary time. And we need to take some steps to squash those fears, to get past this pandemic and ensure a healthier future. But in the meantime... We are going to be here for you to give as much information as we possibly can here at the Physicians Committee. We're going to give you tips on how you can boost your immune system and be better equipped to fight the virus. And other tips, everything from the best foods to eat to the effect of sleep on the immune system and other simple changes that we can put in place to combat COVID-19. And so with that in mind, I will be sitting down with Dr. Jasmine Sardana to talk about the high quality foods that we should be bringing into our house, putting on our plate, and also how relieving stress and staying active can be just as important as watching what we eat. 
So stay tuned for that episode. And we also have a wonderful recipe for an immune system boosting fruit salad that was put together by Catherine Lawrence. Now, you might remember Catherine from the recent Your Body and Balance series. She has whipped up this incredible fruit salad that is super healthy, super simple, and packs an immune boosting wallop. And it's just delicious. You can find a link to that in the episode notes for this show as well. And if you have some questions about the coronavirus, this COVID-19, please send them our way and we will do our best to have the doctor answer them on a future show. Send them to me on Twitter or Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. That's Carroll with two R's, two L's, and the WLC standing for Weight Loss Champion. You can also find me on Facebook and send me your questions there in a message. And I promise you we will answer as many of those questions as we possibly can. We have a doctor's Q&A planned in the very near future, so get those questions in and we will try to get you some answers. And while you're clicking around on social media, you can also follow Follow the Physicians Committee at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee on the gram. Tons of great tips and tricks on there about keeping healthy as well. And please also subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast on Apple Podcast or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever shows are available so that we can spread this information, these facts far and wide. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review because when you do that, That helps even more people discover the exam room and all of the nutrition education that comes with it. The more subscriptions and the more five-star ratings we have, the higher our rankings will be in Apple Podcast. And the higher we are in the ratings, the more people discover the show. So let's see if we can help out and get others to transform their lives, lead a healthier life, and get a lot of information out there in such uncertain times. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And I promise you, it goes a long way toward helping the next person. But that's going to do it for us right now. My thanks again to Wendy Ornt and Dr. Neil Barnard for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe and keep it plant-based.